The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome to the Utah Symphony's Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and I'm joined today by Jason Hardink, Principal Keyboard of the Utah Symphony and Artistic Director of the Nova Chamber Music Series. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's great to have you here. Um, so, speaking of Nova, let's jump right into that. You've been Artistic Director there for nine years now? Oh, uh, this is my eighth season. This is your eighth season. Okay, well, I suspect... After eight seasons, we're talking almost a decade now, you can start to look back on your time there and think about the things you've accomplished. And I know that it's been sort of a crusade of yours. Maybe that's too strong a word, but I know it's been important to you to bring a lot of new music to this community, Mm -hmm. a lot of contemporary music. You've been doing that throughout your career. So I'm curious, looking back, how do you feel the success of those efforts can be measured? I mean, do you think you've created an appetite in this town for experimental sounds? Ooh, I mean, I'd love to flatter myself and the Nova mission by thinking so. It's I mean, a great I, place to do that. So Yeah, okay. <laughs> what I like about what we've been able to accomplish is to, to take small steps. And yeah. because we're talking about a large time frame of eight years, mm-hmm. to do uh, you know, one thing at a time and not try to, you know, Nova has only on the rare occasion dropped a kind of 45-minute new music bomb on the public. Usually it's these... Yeah five to 10 minute pieces that are integrated within a program and uh, juxtaposed with the historical rep in some way that I think uh, is intriguing. Yeah. So in, in that sense, I think our audience, they're, they're certainly aware of the scene, the sort of international scene in a way that they weren't before I started, I guess. I suspect that the only reason you can drop one of those 45-minute bombs on them, as you call it, is because you've built some trust with your audience. They, yeah. they believe that if you put something on stage, it's because it's worthy. Right. Yeah. People still show up for those concerts, even yeah. if in this one case that I'm talking about, a few people walked out. Sure, <laughs> sure. Well, you know, one of the most important parts of, I think, presenting new music is commissioning. And you know from your work with Utah Symphony that that institution has been pretty active mm-hmm. in that, at least as in terms of how active orchestras typically are these days, oh, which sure. usually means one, maybe two pieces a year. And I know that you've been really busy as a commissioner too. So talk a little bit about what goes into the selection of a composer and a project, at least for Nova. What I'm curious about mostly is whether or not this is curated by a committee or do you have sole discretion? How does it work? One of my favorite examples um, when I was in college, I was kind of uh, going through this period where I was looking for maybe music by a living composer that just, you know, rocked me, like yeah. really grabbed me by the shirt collar and um, music that I could call my own. And I ended up finding that in this guy named Jason Eckhart. Uh-huh. And there's this one piece I remember listening to in the library with my headphones on and just like, this is it. This, you know, like I went straight to the computer, wrote the guy an email, like, how do I get this music? Yeah. Um, and honestly, like I'm telling you this story because that, the commissioning process for him started then. Like it was just a, a love affair for me with sure. his music. And it took, what, 12 years or something before he ended up, he ended up writing Nova a piece. But um, my favorite interaction with composers is one that's long-term and not just a kind of one-off, like you just call someone up and say, hey, I like your music, write me a piece. No, it's, it's great when you can really show invest yourself in their music beforehand and have a relationship with the composer so they know you, you know them, and then they write for you. Now, you can't do that with every single commission, but yeah. um, we, we try at Nova as much as possible to, like, if we're going to commission someone 
at the very least, there'll be a piece of theirs in the year before. So uh-huh. people are aware of what's coming. So you're building a little capacity in your audience for them, yeah. for their sound, yeah. yeah. So that cold call style that you sort of mentioned as not being a regular occurrence, does mm-hmm. that happen ever? I mean, Well, I mean, like, for instance, this uh, Piccolo Concerto by Simon Holt, right. uh, you know, that came about, since we're asking about how these commissions uh, arise, yeah. yeah, usually it's me sort of doing a lot of long-term planning and talking to composers for years before the commission happened. Building but a relationship with them In this case, yeah. Caitlin uh, did exactly, Caitlin Balavik Moore, a piccolo player, right. a piece was written for her. She just walked to Simon at a, a rehearsal. She walked up to him, uh, we were playing one of his pieces, and said, hey, I love the way you write for the piccolo. Yeah. Why don't you write me a piece? Huh. And then Thierry got involved, and then, sure. the, you sure. know, why don't we do it on Nova? Sure. Of course, of yeah, course. Yeah. Um, but that's a, that's a case of, like, you know, I thought maybe we would have Caitlin play his solo flute piece one year and then right. do the, you know, it just didn't work out. Everything happened so quickly. I suspect with when there's a, when there's a concerto in play and you've got another artist in the mix, then the, the relationship building is even more important. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, you did mention that the Utah Symphony was performing a work by Simon Holt and that I'm sure played into your decision to work with him because I think you've been quite creative over the years in connecting Nova's programming with what the Utah Symphony is doing, particularly with regards to who the Utah Symphony is commissioning. I, you know, examples are Andrew Norman, Nico Muley, uh, Augusta Reed Thomas. That's, mm-hmm. that's developing still. How have you been able to make Ives an important part of your Nova 16, 17th season? And the reason I ask is because Ives is a, is a push of Maestro Fisher's this year. He's doing the symphony cycle. Right. So not a commission, obviously. Mm-hmm but certainly a repertoire connection that I know you've exploited. So tell us how. Well, this is kind of a, I have, this could be a long answer, so just jump in and cut me off if I start to ramble. I wouldn't dare. <laughs> I wouldn't dare. Um, the most obvious way we're connecting is, you know, we do Ives for Symphony, which is, oh, I'm just so excited about it's, that piece. Yes, me too. Um, so on the Sunday, the week of that concert, preceding that week, uh, Nova's presenting a Ives and his Legacy type concert. Mm-hmm. And the Ives Legacy, of course, is too big to, kind of deal with in one concert. So we're narrowing it down to composers uh, from Michigan who in the 70s um, kind of had an awakening and a reclaiming of a new modern American style that mm-hmm. in, in fact um, embraced vernacular musics in the same way that Ives did. And so we've got like a few standard Ives pieces like the fourth violin sonata and the trio. Mm-hmm. A piano trio, and we're combining that with works by Bolcom and William Albright. Uh, and I think I'm really excited about that program. It, 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 the music just all goes together very well. Yeah, it's it's funny because the way the program starts is with an organ prelude that Richard Elliott's going to play. Um, this beautiful um, kind of big eight minute um, build up, and then and receding. Yeah, and it ends with this quote of Rock of Ages. Aha. Uh-huh. And then at the very end of the concert, the Ives ends with that same quote. So there's, there's all these kinds of connections in terms of the way the uh, composers use these materials. But then in addition to this concert, I just want to say that it's gotten me thinking, the whole question of an Ives cycle has gotten mm-hmm. me thinking about the ways in which you know, vernacular musics were important to other composers. And like when I... When I play Schubert, I, mean, I just think there's so much Hungarian music in there. We don't really talk about it much because right. ethnomusicology did not exist during Schubert's time, sure. and you can't. Um, but so, for instance, I think the concert that we do in March is also an Ives concert, and yeah. that's music by Schumann, who I think 
is Ives, 19th century predecessor. Sure. A sort of literary composer who, with wild imagination, sure. bipolar musical personality. Yeah. And then Christian Asplund, yeah. who is like a Utah Ives uh-huh. inheritor of that tradition. Does it have that same sort of juxtaposition of quotidian and modern, like this sort of... He can. He doesn't yeah. always do it in the same piece, but I just, I think, we're actually, the, the Christian Asplund thing is... Um, it's funny because on the first half of that concert, he's playing with this, what sounds like a jazz combo. He plays uh-huh. piano. Uh, there's a drummer, a bassist, and a sax player. He right. writes these pieces. I can't really stick them in a category. Sure. Because they certainly reference the, the sound of that ensemble and jazz. And yeah. This is a kind of funk to those pieces. Um, but they're modern compositions. Sure, sure. Um, and then on the second half, he'll play a viola improvisation. I know you're... I, I don't see you rolling your eyes, but I, I know you want to. No, no. <laughs> but he does these uh, improvisatory pieces with electronics uh-huh. and special effects. And you you got to see this. I mean, it's really, really impressive and really creative. So very, very modern language, but that vernacular accent is present, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that's, so let's, let's, let's leave Jason, the artistic director, for a moment and talk about Jason, the pianist. Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned Ives 4. I know partly why you're excited. Mm. This has a huge solo piano part that you'll be featured on, which is great. And, and I think people can already tell by what you've said that you've got a personal affinity for Ives, and you probably have for a long time. But tell us about how Ives and his music in particular has sort of informed your career as a pianist. Oh. At times I've thought that music is so close to like my soul, but yeah. I don't know a better word. Yeah. I think the two reasons I, I don't want to say I understand his music because I'm, you know, who does, but um, I'm from New England. Mm-hmm. That, I, I, that matters. I, the town I grew up in, yeah. you know, when you're just like driving to my house, you drive by this white congregational church sure. that plays hymn tunes yeah. from the tower on the uh, uh, on every hour yeah. and the bells the overtones of the bells are not in tune with the pitches themselves so sure sure so you know you're you're out on your deck <laughs> at home and those bells come on yeah. you know with some protestant hymn and yeah. you can't escape those hymn tunes in my sure. town they're just always yeah. kind of ringing and then one of my moments in high school you know you have these kind of revelation type awakening sure. experiences one of my big ones was uh we were you know you study like the transcendentalist authors for like a couple of days mm-hmm. and, you know read a few paragraphs of emerson in your senior year and then you move on and yeah. this the the excerpt of whatever essay it was just jumped off the page at me and i like went home and bought his essays and just yeah. started reading this stuff yeah and i think in my mind that is the most important sort of prep material. If you want to understand Ives, read Emerson. It's mm-hmm. it's messy and self-contradictory, but every sentence leaps off the page like a, a bolt of lightning. It's yeah. just so inspiring. And so to get to my point, since I know how you are with ghost stories, I'm going to... We'll get there. You know, reveal this thing <laughs> that, is, you know, but when I first learned the Congress Sonata, I only played a couple movements of it. I started learning Emerson. And I mean, I had that movement memorized in like a handful of days. Sure. Just, I had this feeling, the only time in my life I've ever had this feeling that I knew the music from a previous life. Sure. I mean, it just spoke to me in, at such a deep level, and I can't, I can't explain it. You, you know, Concord Sonata is a piece that I've had a long sort of personal listening history with, too. And I can remember a moment in high school where I listened to the Alcott's movement. Mm. And there's that moment where he sort of very sweetly and very loosely quotes Beethoven 5. Mm-hmm. And... There's just something about the harmony of the moment and just the quietness of it. And 
I just remember thinking to myself, yeah, that's it. Mm. I don't know what the question was, but that's it. Yeah. That's the answer. And I, there's something about this man's approach to art and music making, especially since he was, I think, a little um, hard to read on that for, for a long time because it wasn't his first job. He, there was a lot of his music that he never wanted people to even hear. I mean, it, took, yeah. it was late in his life that he allowed several of his pieces to even be played. So, I mean, he always had sort of a fitful relationship with himself as a musician. But mm-hmm. you listen to those moments and you just think, wow, what's, he was in touch with something maybe kind of cosmic. I don't really... Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, you know, let's talk a little bit more about you as a pianist, Jason, because I want to give you some credit where it's due and maybe embarrass you a little bit. I've, I've seen you perform Messe and Svent Regard from memory. That's mm-hmm. two hours, right? Mm-hmm. Correct me. Is it two hours yeah. and three minutes? One two. hour is 57? Two hours. Two okay. hours is close enough. I mean, two hours of that kind of music from memory, it was something I won't soon forget. I, I told you I thought it was a ridiculous feat of physical, mental discipline. So I'm curious, do you have any plans for something like that coming up in the future? Any sort of similar sort of Olympic feats of strength that you... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it just reminds me of my twin six-year-olds like wrestling on the floor. Feats of strength. Who's stronger? It's the same thing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I haven't done anything qu- quite like that in a while. So I do feel like I'm due. Yeah, for, yeah. For, um, you don't have to give away any secrets, but at least well, say that something is I, I on guess the horizon. I, yeah. Well, Nova has been featuring music by Michael Hirsch, uh-huh. who's this American composer. Well, you know who he is, I but do, the, yeah. the audience might not. So yeah. uh, the composer from Baltimore mm-hmm. teaches at Peabody. Mm-hmm. Really really profoundly interesting and um, moving music that he writes. And, and next year on Nova, we're going we're gonna, to uh, present his chamber opera, big two-hour piece. And along with that, I'm planning to play The Vanishing Pavilions. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe it'll be that time of year or not. We're still kind of figuring things out. Um, but that is even longer than The Vent Regard, two yeah. and a half hours, yeah. very dark, and um, I want to say virtuosic, but that's not the that's not the right word. I think it's really... intellectually virtuosic for sure. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's you know a two and a half hour piece that's made up of fifty five zero movements. Right. right. Um, so I don't think any single movement is longer than about eight or nine minutes. Right. A lot of them are some of them are thirty seconds sure. long. Sure. Sure. Um, so yeah, that's that's in the works, and that's a that's a big. I mean, I could just to give you an example, the second movement of the piece is thirty seconds long. Mm-hmm. Is that right? 30 seconds, a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, probably like 20 pages long. I mean, <laughs> it is this flurry yeah. of, of virtuosity that, I mean, I, I hate to think the hours that I will spend on that minute of music. It's yeah. just, it'll be really wild. Well, everyone should keep an eye on the Nova website to see when that happens because you certainly won't want to miss that. I think it's interesting that you mentioned Michael Hirsch, someone we both know, particularly on a podcast where we're talking about Ives, because I think there are some similarities there. Michael's an iconoclast, mm. just like Ives was, and also, I think, very American in the way he approaches his, his art. Mm. So, Jason, we're at that point now. You referenced it before, where we have to do this tradition on the Ghost Light mm. podcast, where I have to ask you, have you ever seen a ghost? Yeah. You know, I listen to the podcast, so I knew this yeah. was coming. <laughs> <clears throat> and so I'm debating telling us, you know, I have a musical ghost story. Tell it. But... You know, I don't think my colleagues, if they listen, yeah. will ever let me live it down. I'll make sure so. they do. All right, so here's the, here's the thing. I went to the Boston University Tanglewood. It's the high school mm-hmm. Tanglewood, you know, Tanglewood yeah. for high school students yeah. uh, in the early 90s for a couple summers. And first summer I was there, you know, as a pianist. And the previous season, Leonard Bernstein and Copeland had died. And they were huge figures at Tanglewood. So every... The titans. Just, 
beaten over the head yeah. with memorial concerts and speeches and right. I mean we knew they were important but it was it was intense and I you know became friends with a couple guys one was a violinist from England and the other was a cellist from Florida I'm pretty sure we were like geek squad mm -hmm. we were just mm -hmm. you know I mean this this violinist was you know he was like a smart Brit you know he would like drop nuggets of information like hey man Bruckner's not a romantic composer He's post-romantic. You're like, I just blew my mind, dude. So anyway, he was kind of our ringleader. That sounds like high school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was our ringleader. And he, you know, it was clear from the beginning he had this kind of like thing with the occult. Uh -huh. And uh, so eventually, you know, we're hanging in his room one night. He's like, let's make a Ouija board. Let's see if we can get Leonard Bernstein on the line. Let's call sure. him up. Sure. That's what you do, right? That's what you do. Yeah. And... You know, the, like I said, the vibe and the atmosphere was such that yeah. this guy was present, you yeah. know. So, you know, we, we do the Ouija board thing and sit around for a long time. And finally, Leonard Bernstein answers us, you know. And through a series of yes and no questions, you know, it, you probably didn't know this, but it turns out that Leonard Bernstein's big, biggest musical regret in life was that he didn't write a major string quartet. Really? And he wanted us to, uh, you know, dictate it. <laughs> he from beyond the grave and so we made this musical ouija board where we had like you know quarter note eighth note pitches all, all the musical symbols and we sat there while quote unquote you know this this was happening like we were writing this piece out sure. one note yeah. at a time and of course the embarrassing thing is i i was you know me and my cellist buddy we just i don't know how he felt honestly but it seemed it, I was taken. I thought this was happening, and he didn't talk to anyone about it because it was just so crazy. Of course not. And, Top uh, secret. So, so musical dictation Ouija board. So then, anyway, um, <laughs> you know, I finished the summer just sort of confused and mesmerized by this whole experience, and not really telling anyone. And then months later, during the winter, I get a, a letter in the mail from a violinist friend from England. It's like the first movement of the quartet, Leonard Bernstein's no. string quartet. No. And it came with this letter that was like, you know, I, uh, I, f I figured out a way to drop the whole Ouija board thing, and he just speaks directly into my mind, and I dictate. And I was like, okay. Yeah, we're done now here. Now I know this is... We're done here. But the thing is, I, uh, I'm not sure if I threw that out, because I've always, you know, maybe I should dig out that score, and we should, you know, have Jason, a reading. if it exists, I don't, see, I don't see any way around you putting this on a Nova yeah. concert at this point. Leonard Bernstein, posthumous. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it sounds remarkably close to the story about Beethoven's 10th symphony being dictated to somebody. So, yeah. Uh, oh, wow. There you go. I love I loved that you thought there was an embarrassing part of that story. Yeah, the, the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's that's one for the books, Jason. Thank you very much. And actually, great conversation today. Thank you so much for being on the yeah, Ghost Light Podcast. This weekend, guest conductor Mark Wigglesworth leads the symphony in a concert of classical favorites. Internationally acclaimed pianist Francesco Piemontesi makes his Utah Symphony debut performing Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 27. Maestro Wigglesworth will also conduct a symphonic suite from Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. Tickets and information are available at utahsymphony.org. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera Season Sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. <laughs>